Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading, along with idiosyncratic side quests into <laughs> mundanity and minutiae that very few people care about. Maybe two. Maybe well, two. Maybe two. You're listening to this podcast. You've probably been here for a while. At this point, it's about the side quests. That's right. That's right. It's it's not the destination. It's the getting lost and arguing along the way. <laughs> At least that's how I grew up. Uh, I'm Jeff O'Neill. She's Rebecca Shinsky. Today is February 12th, 2021. Full-on winter. The winter of our discontent. Mid-February. Here in the... The beginning of the end of the COVID pandemic, Rebecca, do you feel it coming a little? I My do. parents have been vaccinated. For me, that's one of the huge hurdles. So I'm feeling optimistic today on I February 12th. I do. I was, Amanda and I have been talking about how a thing that has become a ritual for both of us is daily a daily check of mm. the map on the homepage of the New York Times app that shows what percentage of the population totally. has had one shot and what percentage is fully vaccinated. And seeing it tick over 10% this week felt very mm-hmm. significant. We hit 10% in Virginia, I think on Monday of this week, and the country crossed over 10% has had at least one shot yesterday on Thursday. Um, super exciting to see that. I think my own vaccination timeline is still feels like a distant horizon. Um, and that's as it should be for being, you know, young and as healthy as I'm fortunate to be. But yeah, I've had the same thing. One of my parents has been vaccinated. I've got good friends and a sibling who's been vaccinated because of their work. And mm-hmm. that it feels good to see it close to home. Like you don't have to play six degrees of Kevin Bacon to find someone <laughs> who's right, right. had a shot at this point. Um, I've, I'm yeah. feeling my brain is returning after 2020 for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm feeling I actually when you said winter of our discontent, I had a physical reaction that was like, no, I'm actually no, this is this is okay. We're okay. (laughs) I mean, it is the garbage, the garbage month of the year, February. I mean, we can we can all admit (laughs) at least it's the shortest one. (laughs) At least it's the shortest one. Okay. Uh, Up first, we're going to do the results of the voting for our spring (laughs) preview draft after this sponsor. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, I wish this was a more enjoyable victory for me. <laughs> no, um, you don't. You're you're happy. <laughs> I would rather have an unenjoyable victory than a pleasant loss, I guess, is what I'm saying. But I didn't get all of the shine that I wanted after my narrow six-vote <laughs> victory. Uh, we had six about out of how many? 59. 59 votes. 59 people voted in. Uh, all but a couple did the just the vote that I said because I was like just just write the name and then you don't have to feel the pressure to explain but everyone wanted mm. to explain and boy am I glad they <laughs> did because the difference in margin those those six votes if you took out the ones that I kind of wish I didn't get it's essentially <laughs> a tie and the ones I wish I didn't get one little something like this normally oh. most of the time in general I like Rebecca her reading her moral being, her picks better. <laughs> Normally, I like that better. But against my, you know, existential wishes, I feel compelled <laughs> to vote for Jeff's list. Or no, not Jeff's list, for Jeff. Uh, because of <laughs> cheating, which was essentially the survi- uh, picking the Jane Harper. Well, not to mention that you are the one who compiled the list from which we sourced our drafts. 
I don't know. You do your homework, you get the gold star. What do you want me to do? I don't know what to tell you about this. So I won. I'm not super happy about it. Um, Maybe I'll go. I'll compile the list if we do the same thing in the fall, and we'll see what happens. Yeah, we'll then. see. We'll see what happens. Uh, thank, thank you all for playing. I did enjoy it. You know what won? I'll tell you who won. The game won. Mm. People liked the game. Ah, good. Yeah, game. I like that. That's that is good. And yeah. I uh, I'm glad that I don't check our podcast email because even though I lost the game, I won you having to read messages apparently about how great I am. Yeah, right. And I would like this credit, if only this, that I didn't bury that. <laughs> <laughs> a gentleman and a scholar. Yeah, I, I couldn't enjoy, I wouldn't, I'm not one of those persons if I would have enjoyed the uh, slights on my way to victory, I wouldn't have been able to enjoy it in victory anymore. I would have enjoyed it less. So thanks for playing along. I think we'll resurrect that one from Yeah, time that was time. fun. I don't, I don't know. Um, it wasn't. You know, none of our drafts are going to be exhaustive because a exhaustive is hard. There's lots of books and it's not our personality. We don't want to try to consider all the books and so many of them are outside of our interest and really our ability to assess whether or not they're interesting picks. I think we're weak on sci-fi fantasy, for example, between the two of us or horror mm-hmm. or some other things like that. Um, a lot of self-help or lifestyle kinds of stuff. So it's going to be mostly a draft, a preview of things we care about even if our caring about them is to not care about them proactively, which is its own strain of caring, a twist, its own twisted uh, strain <laughs> yeah, of caring. Yeah, well, look, you said way. it at the top of the show. This is idiot- idiosyncratic side quests, and yes, that's right. nothing is more idiosyncratic than reading taste. That's true. Uh, some other follow-up had a very nice, nice, thoughtful and welcome email from, I need to keep them as anonymous as they can in, in multiple vectors, but mm. from a bookseller, a frontline bookseller, that works at a large bookstore in a liberal city okay. in a very red state. Ah, um, that's an interesting conundrum. It is, especially related to talking, um, we were talking about Powell's and the thorniness, spikiness, difficulty of this question of what are you going to stock? What are you going to shelve? What are you going to put face out? Mm. What are you going to mm-hmm. keep one copy of so people know it's there? What will you order for people if they ask for it? What will you not? Um and depending on how, I don't know, far left you want to go, you know, the, the, the number of books any individual person might cull from their own bookseller shelves, there's a spread there, right? Mm-hmm. Even those of us on, you know, center left or left or whatever, we're going to have a different range of where our tolerance is for saying, I don't even want to have this in my store versus not for me, but if someone wants to buy it, you know, there's there. Um, up to and including for some people, the best-selling children's book series of all time. You may have heard of it. I mm-hmm. can't think of the name off the top of my head. Um, some of that you sort of have to do to keep the lights on in a way sure. that's fair. So I, there wasn't. There's not really a takeaway except the takeaway is, yeah, it's also a lot bigger and thornier than this particular edge case, which actually is not that tough. They could say probably, yeah, we're just not even going to sell that book. But if you really extend that to we here have the liberty to some degree of choosing what we talk about. Um, we have slightly, we do, we extend slightly less control to the ads that appear, but we still extend some. Does it extend to the publishers of books who we wouldn't take an ad for, but we'll take an ad for the, you know, it's, it's, it's messy. There's no clear lines. Um, there's no safe and, and uh, there's no safe and clean place to go. We, we do the best that we can. And I think this person was saying, yeah, we do the best I can. It's really tough. Um, um, this person did appreciate that we were talking about acknowledging that it was difficult and not so clear-cut as you've got to keep everyone or you can get rid of whomever you want at any time. Well, you can do either of those things, but they came with consequences. Um, and, it, and it does vary based on location. Mm-hmm. Um, that part I thought was really important. It's Pals here would have, would they have a bigger problem if um, the state, well, that's a weird thing about Oregon though. Like Portland is like basically cobalt and the rest of the state is ruby so even though more people live in portland than anywhere else you go much outside of portland it's a pretty darn conservative place um this this state that they're talking about is like that except Mm. there's more rural there's more rural stuff interesting you know so i'm not sure there's anything interesting there rebecca but i did want to pass that on that that is super people feel 
that's super interesting. And I think it's just always good to remember that even if we can bring nuance to a conversation, there's almost always more nuance right. that, that can be found. Um, I was just thinking about it this week. I was listening to Adam Grant on the Armchair Expert podcast. And one of the things he was talking about is how now we're now we're going on a side quest, mm-hmm. by the way. Here it is. Put on your explorer's hat um, that it's unproductive to talk about trying to hear the other side of an argument. But if you talk to people about, like, let's unpack how untangly and complicated this yeah. issue is, you can actually produce some understanding and and maybe even some compromise and some agreement. And for something like how do you decide which books are like what's worth the battle really mm. and and literally what like what's worth it in terms of what you can afford to say no to mm-hmm. and still operate your business these are hard questions and they impact not they're not just principles they do impact people's real lives and that shows up in one way for how we make a website and a bunch of podcasts and newsletters and it shows up differently for people who are deci- who have to sell the, who have to decide which books to sell you know mm-hmm. we're really deciding which books get platform yep. um and that it's a different question because deciding not to talk about the best selling children's series doesn't directly affect our bottom line in a way that if you decide not to put that best selling children's series on your shelves it very likely could directly impact your mm-hmm. bottom line. And that's, I want more conversation about that. I think about how these are principles that are important to be exploring, but, and they have very real impact that makes them not black and white in their execution and, mm-hmm. and hardly ever perfect. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a reminder too. we, we say all the time, or we used to say more often now it becomes sort of like one of those things that's so a priori that we don't say it that much that we, you know, we believe and know that reading is political, but one of the ways it's political is that reading and publishing is economic, and economics are political. Right. Like we have political economy, that's the idea. And in our current economic setup, you really can't be a member of the economic society, the economy, and cut yourself off from other people. So you can't really connect, you can't cut yourself from connecting Mm -hmm. to the larger economy unless you're a subsistence farmer, but even then you've got to pay taxes and do other things that, you know, aren't clean and clear and crisp. Um, And so if that's the true, if that's true, then you realize that it's not the question of necessarily one side of the coin versus the other, because the world is not a coin. The economic world is not a coin. Um, It's more of a sphere with gradations of curve all along the way. Um, I, I thought it, it sometimes it gets specific though, and I think that was what mm-hmm. flared up about the Powell situation. It was this specific book at this specific moment in this specific store in this specific way. Well, yeah, I think the, that political situation in pa- in Oregon is interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't know where the listener that you're talking about lives. I was thinking about our beloved Lawrence, Kansas, which is very similar mm-hmm. in being a mm-hmm. very very blue spot in the middle of a very very red state, and it's. I think it's much easier if the politics of your business and your political principles align with the overall political principles, like with the way the wind is blowing in the place that you live. Yeah. Um, it's it's a little bit easier to take the things off your shelf because your community is likely to support that and less likely to rebel right. against it. And the booksellers who are in places where they're attempting to do progressive political work through their through the economic vehicle of their retail establishment in a conservative in mm-hmm. an overall conservative environment that's really really hard and I want to have complicated, nuanced conversations about it. And I also don't want to make the perfect the enemy of the good. Like right. whatever work you're doing towards that is work that needs to be done and that progress matters and is meaningful and is a big, great step. And that needs to be said. And I think we don't say that often enough just in the world in general that like you're also you're never going to satisfy everybody. Mm-hmm. Like there's nothing that running a website for 10 years will teach you like no. there's no way to make everyone happy. Yeah. And we've talked before about um, if you're in, in if if you're in a position of privilege of any kind along any vector, part of being a part of the change is to be uncomfortable some, mm-hmm. maybe most of the time along that vector. But I don't think that necessarily means you need to be unsafe. And I think that's kind of what right. you're treading mm-hmm. upon there a little bit too, that this this listener wrote in to say there's some things that maybe she would like to do, but it, for the store, um, if she had the, the power to do so and the ownership to do so, but even if she were given the scepter to do it, 
she probably still wouldn't because it might be unsafe for that store. Yeah. Um, well, and and like, that's real. That's so yeah, real. Your, your physical safety matters. I think your economic safety matters mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, you know, like I'm, right. per, I am not going to give up my job on the, in order to like die on the hill of, are we covering a, a particular book or mm-hmm. not? You know, and I have a lot of authorities, so, so right. I could make that argument. I have a lot of privilege and a lot of power here and I could fight really hard for what I thought we should do about a particular thing, but I'm not willing to give up like my, the security of my life to do it. And I don't think that we should be asking that of, of anybody, especially when we're talking about booksellers who are doing so much work and, and they live in diverse populations mm-hmm. where it's, it, it is literally impossible to please everyone. Like you should not have to put your safety at risk. First of all, also people should not be angry enough about book things that your physical Take safety could red, be yes, <laughs> at risk. You are not like, the problem there of being, of being unsafe. That's not something right, you like deserve. This, if you right. Do it, it shouldn't be a variable at all, but it is a variable and it's not one that you should ever be asked to accept. And it's not one that we should expect anyone to accept. Also, you know, this person also hinted on something that's really interesting, I think, to find your sort of envelope of agency that you can mm-hmm. work within, right? And so if you're a frontline bookseller, you may not be able to decide whether or not they, you carry um, a particular Boy Wizard series or book or whatever, but maybe you don't recommend it when people right. ask. Maybe you don't uh, shelve it cover out. Maybe it's not an end cap. Maybe, you know, there there are things you can, you know, kind of find a line where you're trending towards living as best you can the world you want to be in but also not flushing yourself down you know right get, jumping over the waterfalls because you're not going to do anyone any good um including and up to including yourself to do something like that so that envelope of agency is really interesting to think about are you are you on the edge of that envelope do you want to be mm-hmm. on the edge of that envelope mm-hmm. questions only uh, you can answer all right Thank uh, you, let's do listener. Sponsor. Yes, thank you so much. We really appreciated that email. I'm, I'm sure the person knows who I'm talking about. Uh, another sponsor and to news stories. Speaking of envelopes of agency, wow, <laughs> Hachette is a, is a New York Times piece. Um, mm-hmm. I guess I never really looked at the names of the people associated with the books on the on the acquisition side. Um, oh, and I'm not logged in the Times, Rebecca. You're going to have to give me the name of the person who wrote this article here in a minute. And actually, all the names, because all I can see is continue with Facebook. That's 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 the, the byline. Uh-oh. Right and I'm definitely not doing that. I'd like to never continue with Facebook. Anyway, um, but the, the, the top story is that the the probably the most prominent and powerful editor in the world of Big, big Five publishing that would consistently publish conservative dare I say, right-leaning, dare I say, right-wing books, she's gone. Um, mm-hmm. Got pushed out. I love the euphemisms here. Pushed out <laughs> is different. Is it more or less uh, insulting uh, than fired? Would you rather be fired or pushed out, Amanda? I mean, or, um, Rebecca, it does. Me. Freudian slip, it, Amanda. I'm not trying to push anybody out. Hi, Amanda. Hi, um, Amanda. It, yeah, I, it says, and maybe in some other coverage, that she was fired. So I think the the Times is just looking for synonyms. Her name was Kate right. Hartson. Um she was the editorial director of Center Street, which was or which is the conservative imprint of Hachette. It's like calling and the yeah. reasonableness of Center Street. Give me yeah. yeah. And um he, this is one of the one of those beautiful opening paragraphs of a mm-hmm. New York Times piece. It's by Ben Smith. So I'm just going to go with this. If you were a certain kind of distinctly Trumpy public figure, say Donald Trump Jr. or Corey Lewandowski, looking to sell a book over the last four years, there were surprisingly few options. The big five publishing companies in New York and even their dedicated conservative imprints had become squeamish about the genre known as MAGA books with its divisive politics and relaxed approach to facts. And small conservative publishers probably couldn't afford you. So if like the younger Mr. Trump in 2018, you found yourself rejected by most New York publishers, there was one last stop, and it was Kate Hartson. Uh, oh. So Hachette has let her go, um, realizing, I think, that whatever profit they could make off of these books, which is not small, mm-hmm. is at least not worth the PR disaster of continuing to appear to profit 
from these mm-hmm. books. <laughs> Do you, or I, you're getting my. They don't want to be in this business. I mean, that's also possible. Right. Like, well, maybe yeah, it's right. quote unquote worth I'm, it. We I'm, just don't want to do I'm that. trying to like uh, rip and then Brene. That, oh, okay, like, the, fair. You I think done. the. Uh, you, weren't, you weren't transitioning to the Brene. This is my spectrum of response. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. First <laughs> yeah. you rip and then you Brene. Yeah, that um, the least generous interpretation is that they've decided it's just not worth whatever money they could make yeah, off of it to con- for for the bad look to continue that it, that it's a bad look and it no longer behooves them to make that money. I think what I'm more hopeful for is that morally and ethically they're feeling some obligation not to contribute to a culture that's loose about facts and that led to an insurrection. Encouraged mm-hmm. by a president based upon a four plus year long campaign of misinformation. Mm-hmm. And I very much want to live in a world of publishing where publishers take that responsibility seriously, where they realize that they are not neutral platforms, where they realize that their work is not ethically and morally neutral, that it does have impact on the shape of the culture, and that their responsibility is not just to publish an unscrutinized fire hose of ideas and information that and call it diverse but to consider the impact of what doing that does and january 6th brought a lot of that home so i'm very hopeful Mm -hmm. that that's the conclusion i hope this will be a long-term decision i want to see other publishers make similar decisions you know, in future news cycles, I hope we're not getting a return of this kind of propaganda. Um, I'm just ho- I, I'm hopeful for that. At the very least, on a utilitarian level, I'm just glad that yeah. it was done. That for whatever reason, they have decided that the worm has turned and it's no longer worth the money they could make on these books. Yeah, you know, in in, in parallel. Well, it's something we've seen a lot of recently because Hachette had a walkout of their mm-hmm. kind of, I don't know what percent of what place on the org chart these people were, but my sense was it's fairly rank and file as these things go around Woody Allen's yeah. um, memoir. And there's there's a truth here that is most of the people in middle management and below, and I'll throw Rebecca into the same boat with me for this, <laughs> are, are like us, Rebecca, mm-hmm. in, the, in many ways. One is... Well-meaning, hopefully, we do our best, sometimes professional white people who like books. That's what people, yeah. most people who work in like the rank-and-file publishing on the editorial side especially, but most of the time, are people kind of like us. We know they don't want to be in this business. We, they don't want to be in this business. Has it taken this long for the higher-ups to mm-hmm. not want to be in this business, to feel like they had the political cover? What, maybe they're feeling sort of the... There's sort of a weight of moral unionship. It's not. It's maybe not a real union, sort of economically in that way. I don't know if these people are unionized or not. But the the people who work in these companies realize if we sort of morally band together, we can make philosophical change at this company because there's more of us. The company don't work without us. Right. The leaders don't want to work in a company where they're fighting these battles. And something similar has been happening at the New York Times, another whole high profile place, whose you know rank and file editor editorial staff and production staff are probably politically and economically and demographically like like us, saying to the people in charge, we, we don't want people working here that use racist language even on a field trip that represents right. our company. I, I haven't followed that right. story super closely, so I might be getting this wrong to some degree, but like, that's, that's not what we want here. Um, yeah. And that is a hearts and minds kind of change, I guess. Feels it, like more of a hearts and minds than an economic it does. change. I'm hopeful it, for that regard. It does, yeah. I'm hopeful for it. And there is a, a detail here further into the piece that says that, you know, the official reasons for Kate Hartson's termination were that were given were mundane. Um, but that mm-hmm. in a Zoom meeting, the chief executive of Hachette Book Group, who's Michael Peach and Daisy Hutton, who was the who oversees Center Street, didn't mention her by name, but they did reassure employees that they had learned the lessons of the Capitol siege. On January 6th. No hate speech, no incitement to violence, no false narratives. And mm-hmm. that they are making it clear to their staff that they're shifting back toward think tank conservatives and away from fire breathing politicians. That's a direct quote. So I, I, that's encouraging. And I think, you know, mm-hmm. we've been accused of it. And so we can say very clearly here that what we're looking for is not a, a complete absence of books about the conservative perspective on politics to be out in the world. Like, let us have 
a robust discussion about policy Mm -hmm. and ideas. What we don't need is profiting off of books that are built on a platform that actively denies the humanity and autonomy of people. And that's the heart of a lot of those arguments that were made yeah, by the so so-called Popper's paradox, right? The right. We, yeah. We the the fire breathing politicians as, as Ben Smith calls them here. So I'm, I'm glad to see that it's, it is encouraging to see a publisher acknowledge no hate speech, no incitement mm-hmm. to violence, no false narratives. And to say like, yes, there is room for nuanced thinking about conservative political ideas what we don't want to do is provide a platform. Like fundamentally, what they're saying is we're not going to provide a platform anymore for false narrative and for these harmful statements that are fundamentally about denying the humanity of members of different groups or attempting to take away their rights. It does make me wonder the the line you said about you know small publishers can't mm. afford them. There's a supply and the d- demand thing, though, right? Like, if there's no buyer, if there's fewer buyers right. with big, deep pockets, you know, Donald Trump Jr., whoever, what price will they accept for the book? And if it falls low enough, some smaller publisher might sort of find themselves mm-hmm. like, okay, well, we're actually fine publishing this kind of stuff. There's, We would like to make the money off of it. Is there, you know, some company that springs up between the cracks of the sidewalk here um, to become... You know, yeah. a, a big player because people will, we're not arguing at least today I'm not arguing <laughs> that these should be <laughs> illegal or anything like that so presumably someone could go out and publish them and or Donald Trump Jr. could publish them on whatever platform and sell them for a few bucks a piece or something like that but is there a market inefficiency where there's more demand out there from buyers because as we know there's a, more people than I would have ever imagined that might be interested in this kind of stuff from a business point of view do they actually get deplatformed, or does there, do they get replatformed? Is there a is there a functioning parlor out there that will take mm-hmm. these books? And I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, it is. It is interesting. And Ben Smith does a great job in this piece of taking apart some of the sort of historical moments yeah. of this movement and of these arguments, and it getting to the. I would say willful misinterpretation of what free speech means of some of the mm-hmm. older generations of publishing executives that have used that as an argument for defending publishing books like this. Um, we should find the link. We'll have to drop it in the show notes. But there was a letter to the editor, I believe, or an op-ed in Publishers Weekly this week by folks from a small publisher. I'm so mm. sorry I don't have the link in front of me right now. Um, but that was the... I think best articulated and like cogently argued take on not just why it's responsible to stop publishing books like this, but also why this is not a free speech first amendment Mm -hmm. issue. And it gets, it gets muddy so often in the way that publishers talk about it. And I know we both find that very frustrating because it seems like this should, (laughs) this should be Mm -hmm. obvious that like your first amendment rights don't give you the right to have your book published, no matter what it says. (laughs) That's Mm -hmm. not, that's not what free speech is, but they, they did a really nice job. And I was really glad to see PW publish that. And I kind of just wanted to, you know, like staple it to all the church doors in the old fashioned. <laughs> everybody yeah. read Yeah, because you know what we never saw publishers say is like, you know, this book, you know, it's controversial. We might not agree with everything that's in it, but we believe that, you know, free speech and job, whatever. The thing, the next thing you never hear them say, and we're donating all the profits from this book to the ACLU. You never, right. you know, if this was really a free speech situation, make it a free speech situation. That's always that. We'll collect the dollars carefully while standing on principle here. Wow, that's a nice, mm-hmm. who doesn't want to do that for a living? Stand on principle and make a bunch of money. Uh, <laughs> where do you want to go next? There's a couple more stories on here. We're going to play a little yeah. game. So I want to leave some time for that. Sorry, okay. news. Well, this is just, I'm going to go for um, what made me explode into a dopamine-fueled pile of glitter this okay, week, which let's was, go, let's go. Um, in the world of adaptations, Barack and Michelle Obama's Higher Ground production company has set six projects at Netflix. I am talking about this on a podcast about books and reading, because the first one of those mm. is an adaptation of the novel Exit West uh, by Mohsin Hamid, and it's going to star Riz Ahmed. That's going to be fantastic. And, it's, it's great. It's a great book. It's very cinematic. I'm very excited yeah, to see this. It's going to be great. And also, one of their projects is a, natu- a natural history series about the national parks. <laughs> the Obamas are producing 
a Netflix series about the national parks. Mm. It has been nice knowing you. <laughs> I am dead of joy. Really interesting lineup here. I, this is a piece in the Hollywood Reporter. Um, is this byline? Yeah, this is. Rick Porter is the byline. Yes, here. it's very interestingly. Bottom, very yeah, and I, actually, I just recorded the ads for this mm. episode of the show, and one of our sponsors this week. This is just a funny coincidence. Is a YA novel called The Firekeeper's Daughter by oh, Angeline Bouvier. Oh, that's here. Bouvier. That's the, one of the ads, and this it's week? one of the adaptations. Wow, yeah, how about yeah. That? Yeah. yeah, so that works out. There's also a show called Satellite that's a sci-fi feature. Um, Tenzing, which is a feature based on the life of Tenzing Norgay, um, who, along with Sir Edmund Hillary, was one of the first men to reach the summit of Mount Everest. And then there's a show called The Young Wife. Mm. Um, so this is an interesting, diverse, yeah. kind of spicy list for feels the like the future Obamas. rebecca it this does. feels like the future like the kinds of lineups the diversity of genre and voice and you know fiction non-fiction length mm -hmm. feels like the future feels it like does future. i'm really excited about it but i think this broke maybe last friday right after mm -hmm. last week right after we had recorded the podcast and i was like oh my god <laughs> yeah um, actually remind me of the other most frequent feedback other than how much people begrudgingly care that I talk about books at all in the email this week was the, the gross oversight. And frankly, listen, until you've done 600 hours of spontaneous talk on a podcast, talk to me that sometimes you miss stuff like this. But when we were talking about the Penn Faulkner Mm -hmm. uh, trophy for great book people of the year award. I don't remember what it's called right now. We were asking for thinking about, you know, literary not, champion, literary champion. The one I wish I had to go back to do over again. Mm -hmm. But the one I missed was, of course, was the indomitable uh, Dolly Parton is way yep. up there. I mean, really for all the awards, but her imagination library for as famous and as beloved as Dolly Parton is, she's actually sort of underknown, I think for this yeah, in the, in the larger culture among people who know like, Dolly Parton, you realize, is like Johnny Appleseed on steroids for giving yes, birth to kids, basically. She truly, truly is. And it was Danica Ellis, who's one of our contributors, yes. pointed this out to us on Slack. And I just instantly facepalmed. And then mm -hmm. you said, you know, we got a bunch of emails about that. I was like, oh, obviously. And, you know, it's I feel like Dolly Parton's work with the Imagination Library is a very like go into your closet to pray kind of situation. Yes, like yes. she does it and she doesn't make a big deal of it. She's just doing this because she's passionate about it. It really, really matters to her. She gets press coverage and we should have thought of her. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I know that I didn't is that there's not a lot of, she's not out there making a big deal about how she's doing it. I think Dolly Parton doesn't care if you know she right. has the imagination library or if you know that she's the one who's doing those things. She really just cares that the books get into kids' hands. And like, that makes it even better. She should mm -hmm. really, can we give it to her twice? It's like... <laughs> 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 if, what if Mount Rushmore was just like three faces of Dolly Parton and then there's like yes. one, one other spot there? Sure. I'm yeah. I'm 100% into that. Mm -hmm. Also, like of the things people can be mad at us about on 600 hours of spontaneous talking, forgetting Dolly Parton is something I'm very glad to have people be angry at me for. Yeah. That's fine. You, you all were right. <laughs> you you were. all were right. Congratulations. It's indefensible. <laughs> but I will say this. There wasn't wide acclamation about who else among the names we mentioned? Um, some Bill K Gates talk, which he certainly mm -hmm. talks about books in public a lot. Like, mm -hmm. I'd need the resume about what, you know, did he host a PBS series for 20 years that's beloved by children around the world? No. He, <laughs> I am delighted by his YouTube recommendation videos whose production values are way too high, but that's the opposite of what Dolly Parton does. He talks about yeah. the books he's read and liked in a high-profile way that's kind of like an ad for how much Bill Gates reads. Yeah. Dolly's is like, I'm just going to give millions of kids books and shut up about it. <laughs> I guess right. There's like an aspirational role model-y thing yeah. about the way Bill Gates talks about books. And don't get me wrong, like, I also love There's that. There's utility to that. Yeah. Those are lists for people who want to think like Bill Gates or understand mm -hmm. how Bill Gates thinks or ascribe some value to knowing Bill Gates' personal taste. And the Imagination Library isn't about Dolly Parton mm -hmm. at all, um, which I think is just so beautiful and wonderful and let's put her on Mount Rushmore. Yeah. 
The other piece of feedback that I'm going to use as transition into our game, okay. I'll tell you about right after this sponsor. There was some confusion. I don't even know what the confusion is. It, it was kind of in the hurly-burly of the moment right after. Jen and I were talking about Amanda Gorman and trying to tease out all of the what was going on with her books, right, mm. basically. that How is it possible that we have to wait till September to get the book version of the poem she read at the inauguration? She had another, I guess, a children's-oriented book that was in the pipeline as well, and then another book. When are they coming out? What's going on? Blah, blah, blah. Long story short... I still don't know. I'm still not keeping track because that's not the number I, that, that popped <laughs> so my That's eyeballs. not the game. Got it. That's not the game. <laughs> what I saw was each of them, of those books, uh-huh. have an initial print run of 1 million copies. Wow. So that is 3 million Amanda Gorman books that will be printed before the year is out. Mm-hmm. I can't think of anything like this ever. In my history, three different books by a single author, each having a million print run in advance. Some of it is, it's, you know, no shots, but like the poem is short and she did it. So it's like, it's not that, you know, it's not like Stephen King writing a 600 page novel every year and still pumping them out like that. And so, and that reminded me that the biggest number I had seen this year for a print run Mm. is the four wins by Kristen Hanna. Oh, okay. So I got interested in print runs. Of course you so did. So what I have here is, again, this is not something that's publicly available, and I don't understand this, why this happens, but some publishers kind of up and down their lists will talk about the initial print runs, mm-hmm. and some never do. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what the strategic version, you know, what's going on between yes or no here, what the cost is, but I would like you to get, I'm going to give you the, the, <laughs> oh, ti- no. the, 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 the authors <laughs> and titles of some books coming out this spring and summer. Okay. Um, and I would like you to guess <laughs> what the announced first printing is. Okay. And I said to Rebecca before this, when I said I was going to spring a game on her, usually what I'm trying to do is make her squirm and imply that I would have done better. Let's just be honest. That's what I'm trying to do. I will state for the record that however wrong Rebecca is on these, and she will be wrong, and that's the fun of it, assume that my guess was a factor of 10 worse in either direction. <laughs> I will, I'll take that. Okay. okay? I mean, you've already won. I have won. lost the game. You've I'm already won down, one thing this week. Okay. I'm laying down prostrate in the ground <laughs> saying, all hail. So, whatever you do, beat me. Whatever you do, whatever you do here beats me. Okay. So, but really we're losing together. If that's the way Which, you want to play it, that's fine. That's I'm fine nothing with if me. Not a sore, I'm nothing if not a sore winner, Rebecca. That's I like what you your good company. Me. It's fine. Okay. okay. Well, let's see. I'm going to start with a name you know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Alyssa Coles, Uh How to Find a Princess, Runaway Royals. Um, Would you like to hear any more about it? Do you need more about... uh, No, uh, I don't. Okay. 75,000. On the nose, Rebecca Shinsky. We're calling it a game. That's it. That's it. (laughs) Wow, I'm impressed. 75,000. You got that on the nose. What? I didn't know what number to say because I have no sense of romance. I I know that it's more than I think, but it's kind of like one of those words you know you misspell. So you're not even oh. sure if you get it right that you've misspelled you know, it because, wait a minute, I've misspelled this wrong all the time. So this can't, whatever I think it is, cannot be right. <laughs> um, I I would I used to pay attention to this when I was okay. doing tons and tons of title research for yeah. when I was on all the books. So I've absorbed right. some of it. Okay. But I also don't want to say too much about that because I have no confidence that the rest of my guesses are yeah, going to yeah. be equally this good. Is, I, I have probably told you this story before. My grandfather was a golf pro at the Air Force Academy. He was like the pro there at the shop for mm-hmm. a long time. A wonderful golfer, as you might expect to be a pro there. And my dad tells a story about him where he went out when he was younger to play with my grandfather. And it's a beautiful day. It was in Colorado Springs, the you know, Air Force Academy. Beautiful summer day in Colorado Springs. Wonderful stop. Wonderful course there. Beautiful against the Rocky Mountains. They get on the first tee. My grandfather, Chuck O'Neill, uh, may he rest in peace, rips a 350-yard drive down the Man. middle of the fairway, you know, all the way down. He's in perfect position to birdie. And he takes his driver and he puts it in his bag and he gets in his car and he goes home. Because he knows when you're ahead, it's Chuck. all downhill from there. I think about that all the time. So, I Rebecca Shinsky, you just that. ripped of one wood down the middle <laughs> of hole one at the Air Force Country Club. Well, and yet, you know, and yet, I'm making and yet, I'm forcing you a club here. You know, <laughs> I'm just going to, our good friends, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, would tell me don't let your success 
on that first one make you overestimate the likelihood of success to come. Yeah, that's right. Uh, let's see. All right. mm, ba, ba, ba. Morgan Jerkins, right? Was okay. on my list. Call mm-hmm. Baby. Um, what do you want to say? This comes out Harper, hardback, mm-hmm. April 6th. I'm going to say 125,000. 75,000. Really? 75, the same 000. as Alyssa Cole. That's interesting. Okay. I thought that, that, that jumped out to me as being the same mm-hmm. thing there. Um, here's one I haven't heard of. Neither the name nor the title. Great. Gene Hant... Correlates? Does that name bring any bells to you? Maybe. It's her fourth book. It's called The Plot. I'm going to read you the description. <laughs> okay, please. At this point, this is the, the editor writes the little buzz thing. This is in Publishers Weekly. At this point, Jean and I are like an old married couple. The Plot is our fourth book together. And while each of her books is an incredible hook and a plot twist, all of her books, more than being about the who of who you, who did it, so it's a mystery, okay. are about why of what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, like You Should Have Known, which I guess was her last book, Okay. Um, which became the HBO series The Undoing. Oh. The plot's story okay. of a failed writer in his pursuit of fame will keep you up reading late into the night. That is the uh, the hype beast quote from Deb <laughs> Footer right there. How many copies do you believe the plot by Gene Hanf Correlates are going to be printed in its first mm. run, which is coming May 11th? It's probably going to have stickers on it that say mm. from the author of the book that inspired The Undoing. I'm going to guess 125,000 again. I'm doing like a I'm casting a net and trying to do some narrowing down here. <laughs> this is 200,000 copies. Ah, I, man, I should have gone up. Okay. Okay. All right. One last stop by Casey McQuiston. Casey okay. McQuiston, for those of you who've been keeping score, was the author of the breakout surprise hit Red, White, and Royal Blue. Oh, okay. This is her second book. Um, I'm going to read you the buzz. I knew going into it that Casey McQuiston's One Last Stop was going to be special. It's full of romance, big feelings, and undeniable hope. It showcases a world where the impossible is possible. It is everything I love about her work. What I didn't expect was to cry. Aww. That's from Vicki Lame, senior editor at St. Martin. Thank you, Vicki, for the hype beast quote there. That's Casey McQuiston's One Last Stop coming out June 1st. Rebecca Shinsky, <laughs> throw that net. Spin that okay. wheel. Win, win right. the detergent. Price okay, that detergent. Well, I think... A breakout romance mm-hmm. probably still reaches fewer readers than a breakout thriller does because of the like so-called airport bookstore vibe. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna go 150. 200. Okay, well, whoa, copies. bigger, bigger than the mystery. All right, bigger than the mystery. Learning some things. You're doing better than I hoped, honestly, on this. Um, that's very Being wrong is just a chance to learn something, yeah. Jeff. Here you go. Sometimes <laughs> the ones you feel like you know the best, you get the worst. Maggie Shipstead's Great Circle. Oh. Coming out from Knopf, May 4th. Mm-hmm. Here's the hype beast quote. I've always revered Maggie's gifts, but Great Circle catapults her into an entirely new level, emotionally, geographically, chronologically. It's a work of staggering imagination. The fact that it centers on two iconoclastic women in different centuries who are determined to live their lives on their own terms make it feel intensely modern and of the moment. It's going to be such a joy to watch readers discover blah, blah, blah. That's from Jordan Pavlin, editorial director of Knopf. Maggie Shipstead's Great Circle. Mm-hmm. How many copies? 100,000. 125,000. Very well done. Very well done on that one. Okay, let's move along the line here to some nonfiction. <laughs> Is this less satisfying than you were hoping it would be? You're very good at this. You're smart and know things. What do I expect? It's This is my own snare. I've been hoist on my own... Whatever, you get hoisted or petard. I've never been clear what a petard is, but that's the saying. How about another one of Jeff's winning basket picks? <clears throat> While well, we're on here. Uh, Alison Bechdel's The Secrets to Sumer- Superhuman Strength. Okay. Coming out May 4th. Do you need the hype beast quote or did you... you know I what don't. I'm yeah. I know what you're talking about. It's a graphic memoir, but it's Alison yeah. Bechdel. Yeah. <sighs> 50,000? Very close. 75,000 copies. You're within, okay. you know, 50%. That's pretty good. Okay. Okay. Carol Anderson's The Second Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. Coming oh boy. from Bloomsbury, June 1st. Um, she had best-selling nonfiction, White Rage and One Person No Vote. Those are mm. two before, if you've heard of those. 
One person um, no vote is fantastic, BT dubs. Yeah. So this is Race in the Second Amendment, called the Second, Carol Anderson, Bloomsbury, June 1st. <laughs> My heart wants this to be a first printing of like yeah. 300 million. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, White Rage did really well this year. Hmm, 100,000. 500,000. My soul likes that news. I think that's my biggest surprise. I, I'm, uh, nonfiction, we know this about nonfiction, is that it can really sell. Like a fiction work that runs away will run that's away true. and hide, like that's crawdads. Um, but fiction really can. Yeah. And, and wow, I'm so glad to see this, but... I'm not as surprised as I might have been five years ago, Rebecca. How about that? What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's true. And, you know, this print run number is, it has to be informed by the Mm -hmm. success of White Rage in Mm -hmm. early and mid-2020 of anti-racist readings. Like, you know that this book about the Second Amendment is definitely going to have a sticker that says from the author of White Rage. Mm -hmm. And it should. And I'm glad that they're doing half a million copies. May they all sell and then go back for many, many more print runs. May your efforts succeed. Okay. Um, (laughs) Jenny Lawson. Mm -hmm. The blog S. The blog S herself. Broken in the best possible way. Holt, April 6th. It is a Jenny Lawson book. What else do you need to know? Right. It's a Jenny Lawson book. And it'll be funny. And it'll be funny on audio. People love Um, her. 250. 350. Okay. 350. Get paid, Jenny Lawson. Yeah. There's a name I don't know. Tamika Mallory's State of Emergency. How to Win in the Country We Built. It's called it's from an imprint that I have not heard of before called Black Privilege, coming May hmm. 11th. Here's the hype beast. We are thrilled to be publishing Tamika Mallory's work as the first book from our new imprint, Black Privilege Publishing. Oh, it tells us right here. So this is SNS. Oh, okay. I was just about to ask who Yeah, the Mallory is was. a trailblazing social justice and civil rights activist, and her insight could not come at a more critical time. With an unflinching history of America's, American systemic racism and a vision for lasting positive change, State of Emergency will serve as an integral addition to the ongoing anti-racism conversation. That's from Nicholas Kiani, I believe, C-I-A-N-I, editor, Simon Schuster. So, looks like a first novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, novel. Oh, it's first a novel. Okay. Sorry, okay. sorry, my mistake. First book from a new imprint... At mm-hmm. Simon and Schuster, nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Hundred thousand. Right on the nose. Yeah. Right. Can you can you walk me through that? Can you can you be? I'm going to do like the on. Walk me through that pass, Tom Brady. What'd you see there <laughs> that that made that, that that made you throw that touchdown? A hundred thousand is a pretty good vote of confidence yeah. number from a publisher, and you're right from the previous pick that nonfiction can mm-hmm. really sell well. Like uh, the ceiling on nonfiction, sometimes, especially something widely applicable like social issues, is mm-hmm. higher than the ceiling on a f- piece of fiction. So I I think you know they wouldn't have gone for a half million on yeah. an okay, unknown fair. on a new name, but they want to. Part of the reason you so this is it. Part of the reason that you announce the print run is to indicate yeah. your confidence to like booksellers and librarians and other people that are considering buying your book that this book will be good and well received Mm -hmm. and it's also sort of a flag of how invested the publisher is in the title so those are also likely to have marketing dollars Mm -hmm. and this sounds like it's going to be marketable and very relevant but she doesn't have mallory is not a known name yet so that was where, how I landed there. So if that one sells, her next one could be Carol Anderson. I mean, maybe not 500, but she's yeah. going to be in the Carol Anderson mm-hmm. maybe yeah, range, hopefully. sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love gonna, to know. We're going like, to end on an idiosyncratic Jeff Pick episode. I, was say, I would that. love to know like what the print run of like Ibram X. Kendi's next book is going to be. <sighs> That will be. That I mean, would be an it interesting. Has to be five hundred thousand plus. It yeah, it would be, just right? be an interesting flag to have for this. I have the Amanda Gorman stuff right here, so let's just do that um, okay. in terms of names. Change Sings, Viking, September 21st, million mm-hmm. print copies. That's ages four to eight. Okay. The Hill We Climb, this is the inaugural poem, March 16th from Viking, uh, one million cool, cool copies. Man, they're going to sell those out. And then The Hill fast. We Climb and other poems. So this, not just the, the one, but everything else. 
that is a million copies. And that says ages 14 and up. Okay. Um, and these are all weirdly listed under picture books for some reason in huh. Weekly. Maybe because the one is, and they they weren't going to have three Amanda Gorman. There's no look. The, the way they break these out is not. There's not a poetry section for print runs. So she's outside mm. the realm of. She's broke the system literally of how <laughs> Publishers Weekly would do this. So <laughs> they put her where that first one is. The change seems to be a poetry and picture book. Um, you know, I know people in my life that are book civilians that are going to for sure buy the middle one, the poem itself mm-hmm. by itself. Um, not knowing that if they only were to wait three months, they can get all the rest of the poems for four dollars more. So there you yeah, go. I was just gonna say, do that. The world needs more poetry. Yeah, Amanda Gorman is wonderful and an accessible place to start with poetry, especially mm-hmm. if you're like, I want to read more poetry, but what do I do? Spend the extra four dollars and get the other poems too. <laughs> yeah, last one. Uh, now we're in the the one for me. Okay. Uh, as opposed to this whole game, which has been a complete act of selfishness. <laughs> I feel especially invested in nailing the one that you picked from. Yeah. For See, this you. this is this is beating me on my home court here. Right. Can, uh, to do this, Tom Standage, <laughs> a brief history of motion. From the wheel to the car to what comes next. <laughs> a history of motion in ten things that move. Ten moves. Yeah. Uh, Bloomsbury, August 17th. Let's hype beast it. Deputy economist editor Tom Standage's delight. uh, All my dopamine is firing. (laughs) I love deputy editors. They're the ones that do the work. They have to manage one so they can just do stuff. (laughs) Tom Standage's delightful A History of the World in Six Glasses was his first book I read before, which I really Mm -hmm. liked. So he already is in my genre of choice. Has sold more than a half a million copies across all formats. That's the History of the World in Six Glasses. So I gave you a little terrain Uh there, a little topographical, uh, um, card tip. In his new book, Standage gives an utterly readable, fun, and provocative account of the overlooked and overlooked form of technology, personal transportation. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's overlooked. Our second biggest <laughs> expense in everyone's life is their car. We totally overlook it. <laughs> is explores, there a blurb on it yet from Pete Buttigieg? Yeah, and has explored how it shapes societies and cultures over mil- millennia, filled with surprising facts. <laughs> It'll make you look at the world uh, with new and fresh <laughs> eyes. <laughs> I am only surprised that you didn't text me to tell me about this book. <laughs> Look, I'm nothing if not disciplined, so <laughs> d- don't check my drafts when I die. Um, Tom Standage's <laughs> A Brief History of Motion from the Wheel to the Car to What Comes Next from Bluesbury, August 17th. Rebecca Shinsky named that print run. <laughs> 125. On the nose! <laughs> yes! It's a walk-off, buzzer-beating, three-pointer, from the half line. I'm so satisfied right now. <laughs> One twenty-five. <laughs> well, you know, it should it should serve me well to realize <laughs> that I was going to come out looking bad anyway. Because either I set you up, or even worse, I set you up and then you shut me down. What you did right there. <laughs> Well done. I'm so impressed. How'd you get to 125? Well, 500,000 plus total sales for oh, a book that's yeah. been out for several years is right. a that's a first print run and then several other print runs and it's a mm-hmm. long tail and you can't count on a second book no. doing that well. Like not everyone recognizes this guy's name and has been waiting for his next book. Right. right. So, right. I just thought, yeah, about a quarter of that seems a, like a reasonable starting place. Well, based on your performance, I can safely say that is a game you will never hear again on the book. No, that's fun. I like that. You did very well. Now I will. Now we can have fun with it in a way because I wasn't sure if that would be because if we're to be honest, if it's just wildly I, wrong, then it's yeah, like, well, okay, I think whatever. this actually means the next round of it is more interesting because if I can be right. decent at this, then you can pick more curveballs. Yeah, that, that's true. There, <laughs> there was like some of the ones that are smaller. I mean, the other thing, you know, is like I'm picking ones that aren't like. 10,000. I don't want no sh- That's not fun to say, oh, this yeah. debut novel from right, Milkweed right. is a 5,000 copy print. I'm like, Jesus, what are we going to do? Let's cry the rest of the episode. <laughs> but well done, Rebecca. Well reasoned. I think that makes a lot of sense, um, <sighs> especially that last one. If after hearing my performance on this episode, you would like to change your vote about our 2021. I'm sorry. Didn't we just have an, resur- uh, an insurrection about how you can't do that? You, or didn't you just, did you just, did you really just say, let's go find some votes? For, for me? Is that what I just heard? I didn't ask anyone to find the votes. Oh, I see. Yeah. Well, the votes have been certified here for that last game. Um, 
Well, thank you all for listening, Rebecca. Well done. <laughs> but they always say repeating as champion is the hardest. So you got to enjoy it while you can. It's working out okay for Tom Brady. <laughs> Apparently not. Uh, the, the, the first five were easy <laughs> or something. <laughs> Unbelievable stuff. Um, as always, you can find show notes at bookriot.com slash listen. You can choose the email, email podcast at bookriot.com. If you like the, um, if you did, if you didn't enjoy the print run game, Give us some notes about how to do it in the future. I like this kind of stuff. So little is talked about. I, one reason we like that game, I, and Rebecca, you can, of course, always disagree, but I'm guessing you're going to agree, is we don't talk enough about that kind of stuff, like how much pre-investment happens in this stuff. And this yeah. is like the only, and it's only some books, like Macmillan and Hachette are the two of the big five that tend to release these numbers. And again, I don't know why, and I hope I didn't sort of like um, uh, Streisand evict them or whatever. It's like, oh, no, we shouldn't talk about mm. that because it makes it worse. But we don't get marketing budget numbers. We don't right. get we don't get access to their royalty splits or anything else. Like this is the only until we get bestseller list numbers, and even that is suspect. We don't know what the inputs for those lists are. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's and I always find this to be very important to, to important and interesting. I think to, so to too. It's it's right up there with like how little the general reader knows about how little money an author makes yeah. on average, you know, like I think this kind of stuff is fascinating and that these print runs are the outlier, you know, right. not, not the average or yeah, even most of what happens. There's that was really, of... oh, go ahead. Was that fun? Was it fun? It was, even, it was really was fun. I'm like, I'm like super glad that this is the last thing I'm doing on a Friday afternoon yes. because I'm just going to go bathe in the waters of victory. That's right. She's going to go drink uh, uh, avocado tequila and walk down the <laughs> boulevard in Tampa Bay. Couple, I mean, just to give you some sense, some things I didn't say, 25, mm -hmm. 50, yeah. 50, 25, 30. Those are for the kind. So this, I, I should say where this came from. Um, the Winter Institute kind of preview hype list mm. um, has blurbs from the editors and the opening line and the pub information, and then those and for those publishers who wish to supply it, um, the the print run. So it is a marketing forward moment, but that's the list I'm looking at. Yeah, um, I would be really interested in knowing from listeners. What of the results of that? Like, oh, are the any of these, yeah, are any of these interesting or surprising, yeah. or were, would you have guessed orders of magnitude off in one direction or the other because you didn't get paid to think about this stuff mm -hmm. for ten years? Like, I do. I think you know the reason I had the ability to do it to whatever extent I did is that I was absorbing inf that information for like nine yes, years of hosting right. all the books and looking at that stuff. So I just yeah. had a large sample size of past data. That sometimes we mistake intuition for just condensed experience. Yeah, right? it was definitely condensed experience. Yeah, it wasn't magic. That was not magic at all. <laughs> as much it's as better, I'd like to be magic. Magic, magic yeah. is something born with what you did, you earned. You earned that. I, the biggest Thank surprise you. for me is... It's the Gene Hant correlates, 200,000 copy printing of yeah. the plot. I know I don't know how dedicated and how lucrative having a, no shade, but even like a B-level name in the mystery thriller space is. Like this is not the Dean Kuntz's of the world mm -hmm. mystery thriller stuff. This is right. very it's not good, gone girl, very yeah. well liked, but still that's 200K. Right. And you just don't see that in fiction. You, you don't true. see that in fiction unless, I don't even know... I mean, who gets an ongoing 200K at this point in literary fiction? It's very oh, few. Oh, literary fiction? Very few. Like very Colson few. Whitehead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Celeste Ng, you know, mm -hmm. crossover kind of commercial. Well, you know what also? Uh, we, didn't, we're not, we haven't done bestsellers stuff in a while. The Vanishing Half, number two on the hardcover frontlist fiction week this week. Love to see we're it. We're now nine months in. Wasn't that June of last year? Mm-hmm. I think that we got I'm a hit on our hands. I think so. I'm just, and it's just coincidence. Maybe it's not coincidence. Maybe it is just like the arc of readers adopting things. But I've started to see that popping up on Instagrams. Yeah. It takes on a life of its own. These things. Uh -huh. It's so interesting, right? Yeah, my friends who are just like casual readers are reading The Vanishing Half right now. I wonder. Is there some with Crawdads? It was the again. The story was it was percolating along, and then Reese. Right. That's what we were told. But. It was already at a higher threshold level before that. Yeah. Whatever, whatever the, 
DNA that was letting it outcompete other things was already resulting in phenotypes that was outrunning the market. And mm. it, Britt Bannon had a full, was it the end? Maybe it was year endless because it was on a lot of year endless. Was on enough oh. of those? Oh, that yeah. That people were like, let's do that. I mean, how many mm-hmm. of those do you have to be on? Because Publishers Weekly, I think, was Publishers Weekly? I can't remember. Publishers Marketplace. It like, was on a lot of year endless. Yeah. Well, they yeah. do that meta list. Like they have like, here's our, here's our hundred right. list that we keep track of. And then every time you appear on this list, you get a point or it might be weighted. You know, it's probably point. also getting bought at this point by a bunch of people who got tired of being on their library's waiting list for it. <sighs> that's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting too. Anyway, well done, Rebecca. Glad for that. Thank we'll you. Yeah, let's, uh, let's end this while I'm still feeling victorious. All right. Talk to you all later. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks.